Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Guy from Guy's Woodshop, and as always, I'm joined by Hui Huen, also known as the Alabama Woodworker. Good evening, Guy. Good evening, Hui. And Brian Schmidt. Brian, how are you? Gentlemen, I'm doing well. How are you? Good, good. Doing great. So this podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. And we also have a Patreon account. Right now we have one level and we're simply asking for a small donation, kind of like a tip jar, just to try to cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. So please go to patreon.com slash woodshoplife. I'd also like to say hello to our newest patrons, Rex Hansons and Brett Gable. Thank you so much, guys. And uh, we sincerely hope that everybody else will give us their support. And stay tuned to the end of the show to hear what we've got going on in our shops. So let's get right into it. Hui. You've got the first question. All right. So this is from Nick Hellman. Hello, gentlemen. I stumbled across your podcast a few months ago and have been enjoying it ever since. Well, thank you, Nick. I apologize if I have not spent a lot of time going back through uh, the older episodes. So this question may have come up already. I've been woodworking as a hobbyist for several years now and enjoy it as my creative outlet. I prefer making smaller pieces as opposed to big furniture pieces, but have dabbled with both as gifts and favors to friends. In 2023, I'd like to start turning this into a small business. I enjoy my day job, so this would be more of a side hustle to make enough money to buy more wood and tools and maybe whiskey. I hear you there. Do you have any tips or tricks for getting started selling projects? Facebook Marketplace seems like a dead zone, and Etsy seems saturated. Thanks, and I appreciate any advice you have on this subject. Nick Hellman. So uh, we we have talked about this a little bit, and I think my opinion actually has changed a little bit about how someone like yourself, Nick, might, if it were me, uh, how I might dabble into getting into the small good side hustle. And and you're right. Etsy definitely seems like it's saturated, and uh, as of now, it, it, man, it seems kind of interesting because I know of several people who have had issues getting paid through Etsy because of all the banking issues and whatnot, but they did get paid, uh, and I guess I say that to say I think it's a great starting point, something like Etsy, uh, because it gets in front of a lot of eyes, and while Etsy takes its own cut, I think while you're doing that, something that would be a good idea, and I think a lot of folks should do, is create your own website and create a paywall within that website for certain goods uh, and services that you might be wanting to offer your audience. Uh, on top of that, uh, absolutely go for the things that are free. I, I know that things like Facebook Marketplace seem like, uh that's just a, a pit that nobody's ever going to see, but it is free advertisement. And <clears throat> I actually run a dance. My wife and I run a once a month dance. It's a swing dance for the community. And something that we actually swingers do. Swingers dance? Yeah. Swingers dance. Whatever. All right. I, had, I just had to say. I know you dance. did. <laughs> I'm still 14 years old. <laughs> so uh, we. <laughs> I'm this many years old. Uh, Brian is over here laughing. Um, I'm trying to contain it. I'm sorry. <laughs> but uh, but we, we run a swing dance and, and it's for the community. It's it's just a, a, in a community location um, and it's try to be as wholesome as possible. Not a swingers club guy. Um, but we actually use the Facebook uh, 
ad sponsorship thing. And I think it's like $20 and it gets in front of a lot of eyes. So for that $20, you get in front of a very targeted audience. I don't know how effective it is, but I, I believe the last time we threw $20 to advertise for the dance, we got in front of um, folks that were in the local area. So greater Huntsville area, it was $20. And they projected that it got in front of about 5,000 different eyes outside of our current reach. To me, that seemed worth it for, you know, once a month, you know, just to try to strum up a little bit of business for for the dance. Um, so I don't know, Guy, how, 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 how would you go about this if you were in the small goods business trying to make small like trinkets and things like that? Yeah, I, that's, that's a, that's a good question. And he, and Nick is absolutely right. All that stuff is oversaturated. I, I, I shouldn't say oversaturated. I should say saturated. Mm -hmm. Just like everything, sure. there's just a lot of people doing the same thing. If one person can make money on something, everybody thinks they can make money on something. And all of a sudden, you've got 8 million people doing the exact same thing. Right. And my, my take on it is for small goods, mm -hmm. you know, like, boxes and cutting boards and stuff like that uh get in front of as many eyes as you can mm -hmm. um everybody is going to take their cut from that there's just yeah. no getting around it yeah um you can try to funnel people into your own website mm -hmm. um but even if you bring those people into your own website people are still going to take a cut of every penny you make on those goods yeah so I mean, it's six one half dozen the other. Uh, I I say eBay, Etsy, Facebook Marketplace, Instagram, Instagram and Facebook Marketplace. You can buy ads that are targeted to your area. Uh, yeah. That's very good for your demographics, um, which is something you can't do with eBay or Etsy. Right. So I'd say do all of them. Mm -hmm. Why not? Mm -hmm. They're all free services, for the most part, are very very inexpensive. You're going to get in front of a lot of eyeballs and it's all about search engine optimization or what they call the SEO. You have to go in and put all that stuff in, mm -hmm. but the more people get to see your stuff, the better. So why not do all of it? Yeah. Yeah. Brian. So, yeah, Brian. Yeah. I had maybe just a little bit different take on this. I don't have experience doing the things you guys described there, but if he's, if he's, he said he's dabbled with both furniture and small gifts, uh, for family and friends and is looking to make enough money to buy more wood and tools and, and maybe whiskey. So to me, that seems like wanting to grow, but not wanting it to be anything huge. And if he's looking to build skill at the same time, he's been woodworking as a hobby for several years. Um, I would, I would figure out what do you enjoy making and what do you enjoy making that you think people would pay for and start, trying to through those friends and family maybe get a couple of commissions that aren't going to pay a ton of money but you can build a little bit of skill and get a little bit more money out of it um maybe it's a low mark i think sean talked about doing this where you know he'd get enough money to cover his costs and build some skill and maybe get a little bit more money for the shop um but do that and and build your skill and maybe you'll learn a little bit along the way um, and better prepare yourself for um, bigger, bigger, more complex projects. Um, but a lot of it depends on 
on what you enjoy doing. I would not make a stock of things. I, I, mm. I, I've done a little bit of, I mean, very, very small scale, um, done some of that and had very little success. Um, mm. seems if somebody's going to pay a premium for something and let's face it to buy handcrafted, um, or machine made, depending on how we want to define that, uh, <laughs> to buy, to buy something like that, they're going to pay a premium yeah. and, and you can get a, you know, you can get a cutting board or a small box anywhere online, but the ability to customize it is a way that you can, you can justify some of that premium, but mm-hmm. it requires having that order in hand before going and making that. Um, and that way you don't sink a bunch of money into inventory that you have a hard time moving. Yeah, that's, that's really good advice. It, another thing that I'd really like to mention is don't try to be the cheapest guy on the block. Yes. Um, don't get into that. Try to be the quality guy and quality comes with a price. Correct. Don't under, undercut other people just because you're trying to hit a price point. Um, also, ask for referrals. Referrals are a big thing, especially if you get out of the small goods market and you're more into the small pieces of furniture department. Asking for referrals is huge. Yeah. And it does work. If Mm. people are happy with you, you have to ask them to ask other people because people are more inclined to talk about you if you screw up, Mm. not if you do a good job. Right. So ask them to tell other people about the good work you do. If I could add one more thing in terms of what Ryan had mentioned about, you know, making a a stock or a surplus of goods that can become very, very old, very, very fast. And particularly if you are using this as a hobby and like you said, getting a couple of new tools, uh, building up your skill and paying for a little bit of whiskey on the side, man, that gets, it's going to get real old real quick. And there's not enough whiskey in the world to take away that level of stress (laughs) that you might have (laughs) building a stock that large. Anyway, I think, uh, Brian, you've got the next question. Yep. And this question is from Jared, uh, at cutting out back on Instagram. Hey guys, quick question for you. I have an old grizzly 20 inch planer and I want to resaw some wood on my bandsaw down to a half inch and quarter inch pieces. The bandsaw is from 1943 and doesn't leave the best finish. The minimum thickness on the planer is a half inch, but I see the piece do some shimmying when I put stock that thin through there. What's the best way to finish planing the stock and finish it off without access to a drum sander? Any tips would be much appreciated. Love the show and keep up the good work, Jared. So Jared, what I would do when, um, once you've resawed uh, those pieces and and you know let them let them rest. I would I would just get a plane, almost create like a planing sled out of three quarter inch MDF or melamine or something like that, where you can put sort of a back a piece of wood on the back of that that's fairly thin, and then secure your stock to the to the sled. So it's gonna it's gonna keep keep it thick enough where you're planer will be able to handle it or it's going to make the total thickness of what's going through the three quarter inch of the sled plus um whatever the thickness of of what you've uh sawn off with the bandsaw and and do it that way you can use double-sided tape or a little bit of hot glue um 
to to secure it on there. But that's the approach I would take. We, what do you think? Yeah, hundred uh, percent. Go with that planing sled. Um, I, I've not tried this, but I've seen some folks use the blue painters tape and super glue method to attaching those pieces. Uh, I've also seen the double stick tape method, but I think double stick tape tends to leave a little bit of residue on the material. And so that can be a slightly cumbersome. And on top of that, uh, it can be a little bit difficult to remove from that planing sled itself. Uh, I've also heard the hot glue method. So using hot glue on uh, a planing sled. So maybe try that and, and do it with a test piece first, because if... For whatever reason, that veneer detaches from uh, the planing sled. It will. Uh, it's possible that it'll get eaten up and chomped up by the planer. So just make sure you got a couple of extra pieces just to work that out. Guy, what do you think on that? I'm a big fan of uh, using the planer sled, and I don't even know if I'd use a full like a sled where the piece of wood is attached to the sled and you push it through. On my DeWalt four post, there was a couple times I wanted to get down real thin. And on mine, what I had was a piece of melamine with a couple cleats on either side that just went through and it went right over the bed of the, the planer and it didn't move. So melamine is, is very slippery to begin with. Sometimes I would wax it, which made it more slippery. And I just throw through uh, things that way. And it always worked really well. Um, that was before I got my drum sander. But you don't want a thickness with a drum sander. It's not a thicknesser. It's a sander. Um, I have a combo unit now where it's, you know, a, uh, it's a jet model. So you flip up the beds and it becomes a planer or you flip it down, it becomes a joiner. And I, it only goes down a half an inch also. And I've had that happen a couple times where I it only goes down a half inch where it does a good job anyways. I think it goes down a quarter inch. But I put a a, a melamine surface on that to raise the wood up. And that's always worked really well for me. I've never had any issues doing that. Yeah. Right on. The other the other thing I'll add, Jared, is you may check in your local community and see if they have a community woodworking club. My dad belongs to to one up in Huntertown, Indiana, and there's a either a monthly due or annual due, but they a lot of times they'll have a tool uh, like a drum sander that that you can use. All right. Well, I hope that answers your question, Jared. And uh, the next question goes to me. Yay! Yeah. So this question comes from Mark Schmidt. This Mark Schmidt guy. Yeah. Who is this guy? Is this Gotta guy? get him on the podcast sometime. <laughs> My gosh. He thinks just because he birthed somebody that is on this podcast that gives him rights. To... Uh, no, he actually brought in a very good question. So I've been listening for a few years now and I've learned a lot. My most pressing question is about finishing. Recently, I've built a couple kitchen tables that I really wanted to be special and put a lot of time into them. I thought every turn, everything turned out great, but at the final step, top coating. I got a lot of streaking, more so than I've gotten before. All this is a bigger surface area project than I've ever done. I stained it, then I used aqua coat wood water-based grain filler, which left a few minor streaks across the grain that I couldn't sand out, but I can live with that. And then three coats of armor seal satin. 
After the third coat, I had a dull sheen in one spot, so I gave it a fourth coat of satin, pretty thick this time, and the sheen streaking actually got worse. Assuming that I need to sand it down and hopefully not get it down to the stain and start again. Someone suggested gloss or semi-gloss armor seal and then a final coat with satin. Is there an easier solution? Buff it out. Mark Schmidt. Mark, I've, I've dealt with this a couple times in my in my travels. Uh, one time in particular, I was building a, a writing desk and it was in Cherry and I didn't use Aquacoat and we'll get to Aquacoat in a second, but I finished it with, with some people call it a, a Danish oil. It's actually, I was using a polyurethane and naphtha with a little bit of boiled linseed oil in it. And I, I did the whole top with it. And there was this one spot that was dull. And no matter what, I, I said, well, it's just the first coat. Put down another coat. Still there. So I got like three or four coats into it. And that same spot was still there. I'm like, what the heck? So I did what I thought I should do. I took all the finish off and I started from scratch again. Now there's no stain. There's no wood filler or anything on this. It's just bare wood. Same thing, same spot. Okay. I stripped it all off. I only got, I only got like two coats into it before I said, you know, this is nuts. So then I put down shellac and then I tried using water-based polyurethane. Guess what happened? Go ahead, guys, guess. Same thing? Exact same thing. There was something in there was something in that piece of wood that was causing it to uh, absorb more finish. And I couldn't, no matter what, it was that one spot for some reason was very thirsty. So what I ended up doing is I ended up putting on like three coats of shellac and really sealing the hell out of it. Then I started to put uh, water-based polyurethane on and that fixed the problem. The next time this happened, I got one coat into it with the oil base. I said, this is gonna, I'm not going to go through this nightmare again. I did the same thing. Three, uh, three or four coats, I can't remember, but I sealed the wood really well with shellac and then water-based polyurethane on top of that. And it worked great. One of the things you also mentioned here about using uh, gloss or semi-gloss before you put down the top coat. Yeah, you can do that. It does, it, it's not going to help your situation, but I know people that do that because they say, well, it, it gives you uh, a more transparent finish and you can see the wood grain better. So you do like a couple, a couple, three coats of uh, gloss. And then the last coat is just your semi-gloss. My eyes are so old and bad. I can't see a difference anyways. That may be true. So, but I don't think that's going to help your situation. Hui, have you ever dealt with something like this before? Yes, I have. And it happened about two projects ago. And I did exactly what uh, your father had done, Brian, Mark, uh, which was I, I just kept sanding it down and it still would come back. And I didn't know what the heck, what the issue was. And I read about it and it was exactly that. There are spots where the absorption is more so on, on some, some spots, but not others. Uh, and so I, I used a, an amber shellac over top. So I stained 
obviously I sanded down what was already there in that weird sheen, sand that down, uh, put down a couple of coats of uh, amber shellac that created a, a, a barrier so that the, um, the top coat wouldn't absorb faster in those spots. And it seemed to work perfect. So, um, yeah, I did the exact same thing. And that's what I was thinking when, when you were first reading the question, uh, what about you, uh, Sean, sorry, <laughs> Brian, what about you? You know, I don't, I don't have a whole lot of experience in, in finishing like a big tabletop. Most of what I do is, um, smaller, smaller pieces or, um, you know, paint, paint grade cabinetry. Mm-hmm. Um, are you saying that if you put down stain on that wood that you can then go and apply shellac before putting your top coat oh, on? Yeah. And w- is it reasonable to expect that you'll be able to identify those spots that are thirstier than others and may contribute to that streaking that you'll be able to identify that as you're putting the shellac on there? The shellac doesn't show it as much. Um, from what I found, this is probably, this is a very rare thing. This is not a very common occurrence. Yeah. This happened to me once or I said twice in, but it, the last time was probably about maybe f- five years ago. Yeah. Gosh, four or five years ago. It's been, it's, it's been a few minutes. Um, and it didn't show its ugly head until I started putting the, the oil-based finish on top of it. Yeah. And the shellac not only will seal that, but it also gives it the nice amber tone. And I, for some reason my thinking at the time anyways, I went with water-based on top of that and not oil-based. Um, but it shouldn't it matter, fine. right? It shouldn't matter. If you're shouldn't using matter, a de-wax but, um, I just did some, I just wanted to do it differently to see if that would, and I've never read anywhere that that was the problem we, and I'm, I'm glad it, it, it confirms my, my suspicions. Yeah. 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 Again, I came across this because, honestly, because of the podcast. It might have been even your um, your other podcasts. Uh, I forget the other one. Against the grain. Against the grain, where you know the rule of thumb is, when in doubt, just put down shellac. It'll seal it, right? Yeah. And and so I did that, and by golly, it worked. So you know, yeah. there you go. I put a wash coat on, of shellac on almost everything I do now. Yeah. Period. End of story. Do you um, do you typically spray or do you uh, do you put it on with a with a rubber? I typically <laughs> I typically spray. I typically do, spray. Do you notice how I'm yeah. using your term now? <laughs> yeah, I know. I typically spray. Um, it's just faster and easier. And then I just put. Uh, I, I almost exclusively use two pound cut. Mm-hmm. Um, and for our listeners, that means I'm using what equates to two pounds of shellac to a gallon of solvent. I'm not making that much, but you know, I'm bringing the 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 ratio. The ratio. I'm just using that same ratio. So I'm using a two pound cut, uh, which is very light. And I put that down. I sand it back. I may put another one down. Uh, and then I now I'm typically using a, a, a water-based conversion varnish for my finish. 
Okay. Almost exclusively. Okay. If you, it, And I ask this because I do plan on doing this method, and I just want to run it by you, Guy. Uh, so my, my hope is that um, with this China cabinet that I'm building, you know, I've got some, you know, purples and blues and different colors because it's air-dried walnut. Mm -hmm. So I want to apply an aniline dye just to even out the color. Uh, and then amber shellac, uh, a de-wax shellac, and then uh, a wipe-on poly over top of that. It, that should all be compatible, correct? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I thought so. I just you know, want to reiterate. All right. Well, I hope that helps Mark. I was going to say Brian's dad, but Mark. <laughs> we can call him. Uh, yeah. And uh, Hui, you've got the next question. All right. This question is from John Moke, and this is actually his second question. And so thank you for being a continual uh, listener to the show and also bring in those uh, continuous questions. So this is question number two. My other question is about using wood glue, specifically type bond three in freezing temperatures. I am slowly trying to turn my tiny shed into a shop. It is coming along, but is not climate controlled. I was recently gluing up some thin strips of wood for an accent on a holiday gift. I live in Oregon, about an hour east of Portland. It doesn't get super cold here usually, and that's cold for us uh, here in Alabama, but that week was a bit colder than usual. Anyway, when I went to trim up the strips, they came apart where they were glued up. The glue didn't bond at all. There was just white remnants of dry glue. After asking a friend who is a professional woodworker and reading the label, I learned that you can't use wood glue below 46 degrees. The bottle says not to let it freeze. My friend told me once the bottle freezes, it is not good anymore. I bought a new bottle and am keeping it inside the house and doing glue-ups inside until the spring. Is this true that once the bottle freezes, it's no good? Any advice for working in the winter in an unheated shop? Should I worry about the wood moving when I bring it inside? Any other products I should worry about in cold temps? Thanks. Happy New Year. So it sounds like, John, you sent this in uh, early January when we needed a whole bunch of questions. So uh, I, I actually looked this up, and there was an interview with Mark Roberts, at Franklin International uh, through this magazine. I, surprisingly enough, it's called the Journal of Light Construction. I don't know what that has to do with wood glue, but it was an interesting interview. And the question came up uh, about freezing wood glue. And uh, Mark, who is uh, in the ma manufacturing field of the type blonde wood glue, says that frozen uh, white and yellow glue, PVA glues, uh, can undergo five freezes and thaw cycles before it should be discarded. And he also mentioned that you can uh, add up to 5% water to thin out those thicker glues. I ain't going there. <laughs> that might be true. I'm not going to take a chance. And it's just, it, it ends up being more hassle than it is worth. Uh, my, my process here is that if I know it's going to be very cold for a long period of time. I just bring that stuff along with my finishes inside. Um, it doesn't get stay cold here for very, very long. Typically it'll freeze. And then the very next day, it's like everything is, you know, defrosted and, and, you know, 70 degrees. Cause that's how it is here in North Alabama. I just wouldn't take a chance, John, if it were me, I would just bring those glues inside. Now with regards to, um, 
woodworking out, I don't know. I'd be afraid to be bringing that wood inside and outside and inside and outside. You're working at it with it outside when it gets cold. And then, you know, you bring it back in when you're done. You know, I just worry about that. Uh, Brian, guy, you guys work in like colder temperatures. You're, you know, you're a little bit, um, you know, further up north than me, a lot more further up north than me. Uh, how do you guys deal with this? Because I, I can't imagine you guys have always been in climate controlled shops. Yeah, well, I, I've i been really blessed in our house to have about 18 foot by 15 foot workshop in the basement and it's climate controlled. So I've never, never had to work out of an, like a non-climate controlled garage. Um, yeah, it I, I've got three different types of tight bond glue. I've got tight bond two, the quick and thick, and then their hide glue. And all of them say in all caps, keep from freezing. Um, but online research makes it sound like it will in fact work once it, once it thaws back out. Um, yeah, I don't know, I, if, I, I don't I, know I, if I take that chance. Yeah, I'm, right. <laughs> and you never know what, what conditions it's stored in prior to getting to you, what warehouse and if it's climate controlled or not. But I, I like to remove as many variables as possible when doing a glue up. So having, you know, having the right temperature, um, which if it's cold, even if my glue isn't frozen, I, I don't love the idea of doing a glue up in, in, you know, close to freezing conditions or really cold conditions. Um, I want to respond to John's question about, should I worry about the wood moving when I bring it inside? So the, the, I think you, I think you, probably do need to worry about wood moving when you bring it inside the moisture content of the wood if it is if it is being worked and you're doing your project and that moisture content is different than or humidity level let's say is different than the environment in which that piece of furniture is going to end up it's reasonable to expect that wood to expand or contract accordingly um, so definitely something you want to be thinking through guy. What do you think? Um, I agree with, with everything you guys have said. I like Brian, I've never had to deal with freezing glue. Mm-hmm. Um, I've either had a basement, I've had a garage or I've had a dedicated shop area and yeah. all of them have been climate controlled. So I've never had to worry about that. If I did have to worry about that, right now I buy my PVA in gallons. My hide glue comes in pellets um, and I make it as I need it. Mm. Um, the, if, I didn't, if I didn't have a, a climate controlled shop, I'd be buying small amounts of glue, sure. the, like the small 16 ounce bottles, because mm. if it does freeze, I'm going to toss it. Or alternatively, keep it inside. And as far as like gluing up stuff out in the shop when it's 46 degrees, that's just too freaking cold. I'm not going out (laughs) there anyways. (laughs) I'm just not going to work in that type of cold. My shop, uh, sometimes if I don't turn the heater on, is like 55, and that's too damn cold for me. Uh, Us old guys and cold don't mix very well. Uh, As far as bringing stuff from outdoors indoors when 
if you if you're outdoors in the wintertime in a non-climate controlled shop, you probably more than likely have a very, very low humidity. Yeah. Um, wintertime is notorious for having low humidity. In a lot of modern homes, I don't know how old your home is or how old your HVAC, HVA system is, but even some of the older HVAC systems, they add what's known as a humidifier. I know I have one in my house. Yeah. Um, and the humidifier does what? It adds humidity to the air, especially during the winter because it's so damn dry. Mm-hmm. So you bring it from a, a very low humidity to a much, you know, in this case, relatively speaking, a much higher humidity, the wood's going to expand and it's going to cause problems. Mm-hmm. So I'd almost recommend doing your glue-ups inside if you can. Yeah. And letting the wood acclimate indoors for a couple weeks before you decide to glue it up because you never know how that wood is going to react to that stuff. So sounds like you're moving indoors. Tell mama you need a new house because you need a garage. If I could add something to that guy, Um, I I had this uh, exuberant amount of air dried walnut that I'm working on for this China cabinet. And it was in um, a not a chicken coop. It's a chicken house, you know, where you raise chickens. It was no longer used as that, but this walnut was stacked in there. And I couldn't really tell. I I mean, I knew the wood was dry based on my relative humidity that I was able to find with my moisture meter, but I didn't know exactly what the condition of it was. So when I brought it in, I mean, it was one of those things where I took three or four milling sessions. And during each of those milling sessions, that wood had moved a good amount. Um, and I just made sure that I left enough material, enough bite on the wood to be able to take it down flat so that once it really acclimated to my shop, which is about three, four weeks, I knew it wasn't moving anymore. At least once it maintained its humidity inside my shop. So just, just something to consider. Yeah. All right. I think, uh, next question goes to big Brian. All right. <laughs> He's really uh, not that big, guys. <laughs> yeah, he is. He's pretty tame tall. <laughs> 76 inches at my uh, at my 400-month checkup with the doctor last week. Um, <laughs> um, this is from uh, Marcelo Faraz Cosi, and he is in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And awesome. he writes uh, this question, and... His question is fairly short. I'm going to add a little bit to it because I think it'll create some good conversation. And his question is, does a combination square need to be a Starrett or can we go with cheaper brands? And the, the, what I want to add to that is what are, what are the tools? What's a tool for, for we, for guy, what's a tool that in your opinion needs to be that premium brand and what's a tool that you can get away with a Harbor Freight you know, or um, a cheaper, less expensive version of it without it having a significant adverse impact on your woodworking. So I'll answer this, I'll answer the combo square question. And to me, I, if I, I use my combo square for precision measuring, for checking square, for doing all of that. And 
I'm going to be crooked when I cut it probably. So I want to at least be straight when I measure it um, and precise, you know, be precise where I can be precise. So I, I prefer the premium brand there. Um, I've tried using a cheaper one and I couldn't, couldn't get that thing to lock down square. And it was just really, I mean, it was coarse. It probably did the job just fine. But if you're trying to do finer, finer furniture, things that require more precision, it was not an enjoyable tool to use, which matters. You know, if if we're going to use the tools, we might as well enjoy them. So, uh, could I've gotten the job done with it? Probably, but it was, it was rough to use and didn't, didn't lock down well. So I would go with the, uh, with the more expensive option there. Uh, we, what's a tool that you think either needs to be premium or what's a tool that you think is one you can get away going cheap on? So I will create somewhat of an interesting caveat. And we've talked about this before uh, when Sean was on the show, is that I actually use these cosmetic seconds from uh, one of the resellers of these cosmetic seconds is uh, Taylor Toolworks. Yeah. And, you know, you can get a combination when they're in stock. Sometimes they're not necessarily in stock because they have to wait until those cosmetic seconds are available. But uh, I was lucky enough to get a cosmetic second of a 12 inch for, I think at the time it was like 50 bucks. It wasn't that expensive. Uh, A combination six inch square, I think it was like 25, 30 bucks. I could not see any noticeable issue with it. And there was a scratch that was scratched out. Some logo or something got scratched out. Uh, Works perfectly fine. Right. So it's kind of the middle of the road. I will say this much. I have had a Harbor Freight combination square. And from what I've been told, it is hit or miss. And one of the things that's kind of hit or miss is that dovetail way has a lot more slop in it than maybe what you would want for a precision tool. But I have seen other folks having Harbor Freight combination squares, and they didn't have an issue with that dovetail way between the rule and the square itself. Guy, I think you actually have some sterrets. Am I correct on that? Yes, kind of. Had had to think about that. (laughs) Well, there's sterret blades and Hillview woodwork. Is that the Hillview woodworking and metal? Yeah, he makes Um, those inlaid tools, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're just freaking beautiful, beautiful. stuff. Yeah. Uh, I've got a 12-inch combo, or it's not a yeah, combination and a 6-inch one. Wow. And these things are deadly accurate. Now, yeah. as far as if you should buy high-end expensive tools, you know, especially when we're talking hand tools like marking tools and gauges and things like that, I don't think it's important to have tools that are expensive. I think it's important to have tools that work, that Mm -hmm. do what they're supposed to do. So, for example, one time I was trying to find a um, cheap, or I should say an inexpensive combination square to take to work with me because I didn't want to take my, you know, Hillview to, to, to work. So I took 
Um, what I use as everything for my reference is a Incra seven inch guaranteed square square. It's a really nice piece of aluminum. It's very heavy and it's not that expensive. I think it's like 50 or $60 at the time. Anyways, it was that much. Mm-hmm. And I put that in my pocket and I took it to Lowe's with Lowe's and Home Depot with me. And I started checking the squareness of these $10 combination squares Okay. Um, to oh, see wow. if they were square. And guess what? None of them were. <laughs> really? So I was kind of left out in the cold. And I ended up buying a, one of the Taylor Tools one, ones mm-hmm. that I think it was like like 40 or $50. It was still, ex- that's still expensive. It is. For a, for a square. So yeah. um, another good example is, I have a, and I keep it at work right now, I have a Stanley 12-inch tape rule. Mm-hmm. I've had that tape rule for almost 10 years. And the only reason, uh, one day, I kept saying this, one day it's going to break and I'm going to cry because it is the only tape measure I have ever owned that is accurate. Okay. Just period. They're all off like a, small amount like a 32nd or a 16th of an inch but you know that, and that's when you you take it against like 12 inches it's off like a 30 and you're like ah it's okay it's just a tape tape measure well it makes a difference so but you take that 32nd of an inch and you extrapolate it over let's say six feet it's quite a bit yeah to make a big difference so anyways the, the about a month ago, I said, I've got to get a new tape measure because I'm starting to, to do a little bit more stuff at home here and I need to have a tape measure and I want to be taking this tape measure back and forth work for, with me. Mm-hmm. So I, I went up to Home Depot and I have bought Starrett tape measures that mm-hmm. sucked. They were just not accurate. They were just not good. I, I ordered all kinds of stuff. I went through about a half a dozen tape measures off of Amazon, and they just, none of them were good. I sent them all back. I oh. found a Husky 12-footer. I don't want a big 24-footer. I want little tiny tape measures. About, I found a 12-foot Husky that was like eight bucks at Home Depot. Uh-huh. Dead nuts on. Yeah. Yep. It was like eight bucks. Okay. I'm happy. So now I have a, a home tape measure too and a replacement for my Stanley. Same. That's really old. Yeah. I guess the moral of the story is just check don't, it. yeah, you got to check this stuff. There's a way to check squareness of a, of a, of I'm a, not sure I understand. A oh, Siri, come on. <laughs> Siri's like, you better check it. Oh my <laughs> gosh. I didn't even say anything close to Siri. <laughs> I don't understand. I don't understand. Yeah, she doesn't understand a lot. Um, yeah. Anyways, like I said, the moral of the story is it, you just want stuff that works. Don't necessarily look at the brand. Sometimes the brand doesn't really tell you the, the true nature of the tool itself. And you may get one tool from this manufacturer. You might look in this bin of tape measures that I may have found the only one that was accurate in the entire world. Yeah. You don't know. So take that with a grain of salt. Is is it me or like tape measures just getting like 
more and more gigantic. They make these like giant I, tape measures. Oh my why, goodness. I don't know why anybody needs a 20. We have that at work. They keep buying these 24 foot tape measures, these big, huge three pound bricks that people carry around with them. I'm like, and they always set them down because they don't want to carry it around. I was like, hey, why, <laughs> why do we do that? Just buy the little 12 and 16 footers. Yeah. Yep. So uh, they need, they need, we need at least 16 foot. Yeah. We don't need 24. We need 16s. I, I normally gravitate towards the 16ers. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I think that does it. Fact, I think I've got the last question now. That's Dude. right. Okay. This one comes from Nick. And Nick's ass. I have been wanting to ask this for a while now. I have been asked by my wife to build a dresser for our bedroom. That's a good thing and a bad thing. Mm -hmm. This would be my first time building drawers. I had the cabinet built and the drawer boxes built. But when I put the slides on the drawers, just don't glide like I think they would. I mean, mm -hmm. some of them do. I'm just not sure what I'm doing wrong. I have checked all my spacing for the openings. Could it be my boxes are not square? What is the best way to get them square? Nick. So I took this question mainly because drawers can be a nightmare. They can also be very simple. So with this, he's saying he puts slides on the drawers. I don't know. And the, the question the, the, the isn't worded real specific. So there's a little ambiguity there. I don't know if he's talking about the drawers doesn't slide easy or the slides aren't working correctly. And if they are, if he is using a mechanical slide, I don't know what kind of slide he's using. So all that being taken into consideration, uh, yes, it's very important that your, your drawers are square and the opening is square. The more square you can get that, the better. And what's the best way to get them square? I, and I, I know I'm going to take a lot of heat for this, is to make them square. Mm -hmm. When you are gluing up your drawers, double check and triple check before you walk away and let that glue set. If they are off like an eighth of an inch, do yourself a favor, knock them apart. Do not let that glue set. Mm -hmm. Take care of the problem before it becomes a problem. And with especially with drawers. As far as drawer slides go, I've been using almost exclusively undermount drawer slides for probably close to five or six years now on my stuff. And these things are finicky as hell. Your drawer boxes have to be perfect. The the sides don't necessarily need to be perfect, but the drawer boxes really should be as close to perfect as you can get them. That's why another reason I don't use dovetails because I can get my things a lot more square when I don't use something like that. So in your situation, what you can do is check for square and you can use like a hand plane, uh, an edge sander or just a rotary sander to try to trim down things that are causing those, those issues. Yeah. Um, wax, paste wax helps all, cures a lot of problems, more problems than you think. Uh, that'd be my first step is I put, I'd wax the, the glides and the, and the drawers. If there's no slides on it, I'm just talking about the glides, the wooden glides inside. Yeah. Um, but if they're slides, they should have some kind of adjustment on there 
typically on the back of them where you can adjust them. Um, again, I don't know what kind of drawer slides they are. So any anything you can add to this, Brian? Yeah. When, when you're gluing them up to check for square, first of all, um, make sure you're gluing it up on a flat surface so that you don't inadvertently glue a twisted drawer together too. Um, so once you've made sure that it's glued up on a flat surface, I'll just take the corner to corner measurement and check it both ways. And, you know, from one, if from the outside corner of to the opposite outside corner is 18 inches. And then I go and flip it and it's 18 inches the other way too. Um, then everything is good. If, if I need to, to force it a little bit, I'll just take, um, like an F style clamp or a parallel clamp and whichever, whichever measurement is longer, the two corners that are the longest measurement, I'll just put that clamp across those, across that corner and real gently start to put a little bit of pressure on it that way, making sure that I'm also maintaining even clamping pressure across my glue joints so that, um, I end up with a, you know, still a good glue joint there, but that's, that's how I'll adjust it when I'm in the middle of a glue up, but um, that's probably the best advice I have. Yeah. Yeah. So I had recently started using the undermount drawer slides and uh, you're absolutely right, guy. They can be very, very finicky. Um, typically what I'm doing with those undermount drawer slides, uh, or at least the ones that I used had this, uh, the three directional adjustment forward, back, left and right, up and down. Um, they can get really, really finicky. And at least for me, um, you know, I, I, I focus just on one, just do the one, make sure that drawer is perfect before you finish gluing it up. Of course, the first and most important thing, uh, but also make getting that adjustment right and making sure that uh, that it, it's properly inset because it, at least in my case, I was doing inset drawers and I would get it perfectly vertical and horizontal, but it was just be a little too proud of the face frame. And so then I'd set it back in and then I'd have to do the, all that adjustment again. So really what I was looking for is making sure that it was set in properly first and then doing the side to side and up and down adjustments from that. Um, it, it, for whatever it's worth, if you're using undermount drawer slides, um, when I was doing the whole up and down, forward and back or up and down, uh, left to right adjustments. And then I was trying to get the in and out adjustments, right? Now, once I finished that, once I got the inset, pro the inset done secondly, then it was all off again in the up, down and left and right adjustment. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I'd like to go back to something Brian said before about cross clamping. Yeah. The corners. I've, I've done that also, but I've also found that doesn't work sometimes. Mm -hmm. especially if you're using like a PVA glue, it sets too mm -hmm. quickly. Mm -hmm. um, if you don't catch that drawer being on a square in the first maybe five minutes of glue up, you take that clamp off, it's just going to bounce right back. So um, what, what was that, way? Uh, so also with the, with the F-style clamps, um, cross clamping like that, would you want to also clamp along the top of the drawer and all along the bottom of the drawer? Because I, I imagine you could possibly get a little bit of twist in there too, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Yeah. 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 
Uh, I like to use, if I'm going to cross clamp like that, I like to use the um, trigger clamps, you know, like the mm. bar grip. clamps have like, like true grip clamps um, mm. because on the end of them, they've got a really big, long rubber pad mm. that I can put all the way along the edge of the drawer or get more down to the edge of the drawer without worrying about marring stuff. And I can just squeeze it just a little bit at a time to get those edges a little bit more square. But I have done I have done a lot of cross clamping that, and I should say that 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 is probably my first go to. But I have taken that off, and I've had the drawers just go go right back. So, yeah, <sighs> spring back. Use hide glue; won't be a problem. Yeah. All right, so I think that does it for the questions. Thank, thanks everybody for the questions, and remember, we do we do need your questions, so send them along. Brian, what do you got going on in the shop? You got nothing going on in the shop. You gave it up for Lent. Gave it up for Lent. It's been wonderful. I'm, I am excited to to get back to to making a little bit of sawdust here in in a, in a week or two's time. But it's been it's been really nice having having that break. Um, yeah. I we were we went the kids are on spring break right now, so we went to uh, the Ark Encounter down in Kentucky. Oh, um, nice! Which was really really neat. And we ended up staying in Covington overnight, which is where Lost Art Press is. So it worked mm-hmm. out that I was able to go over and uh, visit the Lost Art Press storefront. And Megan Fitzpatrick was a very, very gracious host. And she had me and Brittany and our three kids in for probably better part of a half hour. And oh, kids nice. were, you know, kids were kids. And that was good. And real, real accommodating and welcoming of that. And they did artwork all over the dry erase board in there. And it was, it was really nice. If you're in Covington, Kentucky, I recommend swinging by and saying hello to those, to to Megan and Chris. So is Megan, uh, uh, taking care of the storefront? She was down there that day. Yeah. I'm not, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure exactly the, the roles and responsibilities, but yeah, she was there that day. I think they had just finished up a class and, uh, not too long before. How fun. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What about, what about you? What do you have going on in the shop? I actually had quite a bit going on. So as from our last episode, I finished cutting all the dovetails on the carcass, which was a labor of love. Because uh, they were all hand cut and uh, very tiresome, but I also included uh, the sliding dovetail. So the it's such a long, tall carcass that I wanted to have a sliding gov- dovetail to give it a little bit of mechanical uh, clamping power, so that the uh, sides don't bow out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I machined the face frames, machined the assembly for the bracket feet. I actually carved the bracket feet on my CNC machine. That was a lot of fun. Um, no. I really enjoyed doing it. I mean, I didn't do it. Machine did it, but yeah, I enjoyed it. Oh, no, you, you had a program it though. Handmade. Yeah. Yeah. Handmade. <laughs> um, but that was, that was the first 3d carving I've ever done. That was a lot of fun. And then, uh, and I ordered all the brass for the brass hardware for the cabinet. So got that. Nice. That was expensive. That was, I believe that was not cheap, but, uh, but well worth it. I'm at least I hope so. Yeah. Guy, do- what do you got going on? As usual, right now, nothing. But I actually have a project coming up. I have two projects coming up. Yes, do tell. One I'm actually going to do a video on. Let's mm-hmm. go. And the other one is something I'm not going to do a video on, which is 
I'm going to rebuild our, or not rebuild. I'm going to do closet stuff, closet organizer stuff for our, our walk-in closet upstairs. All right. Uh, this is that whole new me where I'm trying to do part of the weekend stuff my wife wants me to do and part of the weekend stuff what I want to do. So I figure if I spend three or four hours doing her stuff, I can spend eight to 12 hours doing my stuff. <laughs> that sounds a, about a little good ratio. But yeah. I'm going to be building a, a case, actually a solid wooden case, not solid. It's going to actually be uh, veneered uh, case for one of my 3D printers I keep here in my office because it, it's very loud. Yeah. And I want it to look really nice too. So mm -hmm. uh, that's what it's going to be. Is that is that for the Prusa clone? No, it's no. for my. I've Voron. been listening to your podcast, guy. Just look it's it. for my Voron. It's for this guy back here. Cool, cool. It's yeah. very, very fast. It's very, very noisy. Yeah, yeah. If you guys of... are interested in three D three D printing, the per first layer. It's a good podcast. Thank yeah. you. What type of veneer will you use for that? Um, I've got some uh, Riffson white oak for the sides and the top and the door on it, I've got some really, really super compressed, curly white oak. Okay. I think Brian has seen that before. My Remember the router bit box I made for yep. work? Yeah. Out of that stuff? Yeah. Uh, that's what, I've still got some of that. And that's oh, what that, I made the door out of it. Really nice. Actually, I took that box back from work because they, took all the bits out and put them in a different thing. I said, oh, I'm taking my box back. It's like right now. <laughs> so, but it's really super, super cool looking white oak. Yeah, um, nice. And you'll do a I video? Think, yes, there will be a video. Look forward there to will that. There video. So I think that's going to do it for the show. And we would like to thank everyone who left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really does help us in search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and feedback. Please remember this podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community. So if you do have a woodworking questions and you'd like it answered by our expert panel, oh. you can send it through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife. And I can be found at Guy's Woodshop on YouTube and just about anything. You can just do a Google search for Guy's Woodshop and I come up with all kinds of fun stuff. And where can you be found at, Hui? So Alabama Woodworker and AlabamaWoodworker.com. So on the socials, Alabama Woodworker. And same as you, Guy, if you just Google Alabama Woodworker, you'll see everything that there is out there about me. Yeah. Brian? You won't find me on traditional social media, but you can find a few of my projects on uh, Sean's website, SimpleCove.com, at Brian Schmidt. All right. All right. Very good. Uh, thanks so much, guys. And I guess we'll uh, talk to you in a couple of weeks. Sounds talk good. To you in a couple. See you. Bye. Bye.